Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14. We'll begin reading with verse 25, reading through the end of the chapter, verse 35. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Hear now the word of God. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. May God bless this reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. O Lord, we thank you for your word. Though this night we hear hard things, stark things, realities about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Help us this night by your spirit to understand and apply your word in a way that pleases you and glorifies you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's probably happened to some of you as it's happened to me. You walk out to your mailbox one day and there is a large manila envelope, bright red letters, open immediately. Free Bahama vacation. Call within 24 hours. I don't know if you're like me, but I rushed inside, I tore open the envelope, and there was described for me the most fantastic dream vacation I could imagine. And it was free. So I called the number. Well, it did not take long for me to hear and discover the terms of acceptance for this free vacation. There would be a one-time processing fee of $249. And there would be a port fee for $99 for each person. 
And when you got there, there would be a potential hotel upcharge of $79 per person. And then, of course, you had to travel to Miami at your own expense. And then you had to sit through a three-hour presentation about some swampland somewhere in the Everglades that was for sale, and you really needed to buy it. Well, under those terms, those terms of acceptance, you realize this free vacation is going to cost you a lot of money. But what if that envelope said, open immediately, dinner invitation, and you opened it, and the invitation was to come to a great supper with God. And that if you would come, instead of that, that vacation in the Bahamas, and who knows what you would encounter there, in this case, if you come to this great supper with God, you will receive the assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, an increase of grace in your life, and the promise that you would persevere to the end in that grace. My friends, if that was the invitation... Would not the terms of acceptance, no matter what they were, be worth it? Would you not be willing to give whatever was asked in order to obtain those extraordinary blessings? Remember how Jesus in Matthew 16 poses the question, what shall a man give? in exchange for his soul. We could put it another way. What is your soul worth to have assurance and peace and joy and grace both now and through all eternity? Would you be willing to give up family? Would you be willing to give up your comforts that you enjoy, the money that you have in the bank? You know, we sang this morning in that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also if we could have God, if we could have the riches of the, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, would we not be willing to give up anything that he demanded of us? Just last week, we heard Jesus speaking about this gracious invitation, calling men to come to taste and see, to experience the blessing of God. 
And that sounded pretty good, I expect. But do you realize now this crowd of people is following Jesus? They've heard that great and glorious invitation. And suddenly, Jesus turns around and says, If any man come after me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife, his children, his own life also, if he does not bear his cross and come after me, if he is not willing to sacrifice everything, forsake everything, he cannot be my disciple. My friends, here is a very important lesson. And Jesus taught it, and he taught it repeatedly. We looked at this back in chapter 9 and verse 23, where Jesus uses almost the exact same language. And I think the point is that in the church, in every generation, the people of God, the disciples of Christ, need to relearn this lesson. We all need to hear these terms of discipleship. Yes, as we said last week, God wants his house full. But he wants it full of disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And not just converts to a religious cause. He wants disciples. Well, we're going to look at four requirements. Four things that Jesus emphasizes here about those who would be his disciple. The first is there must be an unrivaled love for Christ. So Jesus says, if anyone come to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brother, his sister, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't know about you, but that kind of strikes me as a bit hard. The language there is quite difficult. We, and we have to recognize this. This was a very quick way for Jesus to disperse that crowd of people that were following him. This is not popular. This is not fun. People don't respond kindly to these things. Now, on the surface, they come across as harsh and difficult words. But how are we to interpret these words? Obviously, we cannot take them in their absolute literal sense. Because if we do that, we make the words of Jesus here contradict his own words in other places. And a host of other passages of scripture. Husbands are called to love their wives. You can't say love your wife in Ephesians and hate your wife in the Gospel of Luke. Something more is going on. We cannot take these words literally in the absolute sense. Children, 
are told to honor their parents, to love them, to obey them, but not hate them. And so we, we recognize that there is a tension here. This is not to be taken in an absolute sense, but in a comparative sense. So that what Jesus means is that in order to be his disciple, no other human relationship, no matter how intimate, no matter how important, no matter how precious that relationship might be, no other human relationship must be allowed to compete with our love for Christ. Our love for Christ must be unrivaled. It must be greater than all other loves and things that we love, including our own life, our life, our purposes, our dreams, our hopes, Christ must be preeminent. And we see this kind of comparative love back in Genesis and chapter 29. Genesis 29 in verse 31, we read that when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, actually, The word is literally hated. When God saw that Leah was hated, did Jacob hate Leah? Not in the absolute sense. I mean, the man had seven children with her. That's got to count for something. The fact is, he loved Rachel, so much that in comparison, his love for Leah was like hatred, was like unloving. So here is love in a comparative sense. Not that he hated Leah, despised her, couldn't stand her, didn't want to be around her, but that in comparison to his love for Rachel, It was unloving the way he felt for Leah. Here then is the first requirement. You must hate, as it were, father, mother, wife, children. You must love Christ supremely. And brethren, without this, You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He must be first in your heart. Above yourself, above all your dearest relatives and family, above all your dreams, he must be first. There must be an unrivaled love for Christ. Secondly, 
There must be an unavoidable suffering because of Christ. So not only are we to love him above all other loves, we are to be willing to go a step farther. In verse 27, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, this is non-negotiable. This is, this is categorically what it means to be a disciple. He must bear his cross and come after Christ. Now, it's been a while since we talked about this in another setting. As a matter of fact, it's been exactly one year, less one day, that we dealt with Luke 9 where we find the same expression. Remember that cross, the cross, is not referring to a tragic affliction that falls upon you. It's not referring to some suffering that you might experience. It's not a painful disease that, that strikes you. It's not being cast into prison. It's not even being executed or burned at the stake like so many of the reformers were. These things, brethren, are trials that you have no control over, not crosses. Jesus says you must take up your cross. You must bear that cross. In other words, to take up the cross is something you willingly choose to do. Or to endure. Not something that happens to you about which you have no control whatsoever. This is something that because of your love for Christ. Because of your faith in him. And your trust that God is guiding and directing all the things that occur in your life. This is something you willingly choose to do. I believe it's clear that what Jesus has in mind are the painful and difficult circumstances that often attend those who walk the narrow path that leads to life. This cross that Jesus speaks of is not the same imagery that we may think of when we think of a cross. Sometimes the cross is viewed as a sentimental piece of architecture. Sometimes it's, it's a gentle reminder of the love that Christ had for us. But my friends, in Jesus' day, the cross was a horrific symbol of death of the most painful kind of death, the most excruciatingly painful death that could be experienced. And therefore, the, the imagery here of bearing a cross is never going to be easy. It will, by definition, be painful. It will hurt Following Christ, contrary to many in our day who preach that it will be easy and fun and wonderful, it will not 
You want to be a disciple of Christ? Bear that cross. And it's not going to be fun. It's not going to make you feel good. It's not going to make you popular. But you are to bear it for the sake of Christ. Let's think about some specifics. Sometimes bearing the cross of Christ means that you are going to bear the isolation or the scorn or the ridicule from the world around you. It might be some snide remarks from people at work or at school. People are going to make fun of you when they learn that you are a follower of Jesus or that you believe the Bible. They're going to mock you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to call you all kinds of names. And sometimes, my friends, that pain is even more piercing when it rises from within your own family structure, when it comes from dear relations and the hostility arises from those that you trust and love. Brothers and sisters, when that cross appears, don't shrink back from it. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his honor, bear it, take it up, and carry it, because you love him. Sometimes, bearing that cross is going to arise or take the form of denying yourself, denying yourself some sinful or worldly pleasure. Perhaps that many of your, your uh, companions at school are doing. But you, because of your love for Christ, must say no. We have a wonderful example of this in Hebrews 11. And speaking of Moses, verse 24, we read that by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then listen to what faith in Christ does. Choosing, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses, because of his love for God, chose to deny himself those sinful pleasures that he could have had in Egypt. And he chose rather to suffer with the people of God. My friends, the cross is non-negotiable. Without bearing this shame and ridicule and pain and suffering, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, thirdly, it must be an unrestricted sacrifice on behalf of Christ. Look at verse 28 in our text. 
Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? What these words suggest to us is this, that becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a decision that is to be made hastily or without careful thought. This decision is to be made only when a person understands what it means to follow Christ. Now, my friends, what what a privilege we have to have the instruction and to, to know the word of God as we do. To have this passage before us. When I first, I guess, came to Christ, I had no idea of what it involved of what it was going to cost me to follow Christ. But if we're going to follow him, Jesus says you need to sit down and count the cost, calculate what it means, weigh carefully the consequences that are going to follow. There are many, I know them, perhaps you know them as well, many who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps just a short while later, they've turned away and brought shame to the name of Christ and the church. That's why Jesus says, if you don't count the cost, if you enter into this carelessly, and then you can't complete it, you fall short of it, Others are going to mock you. They're going to say he began, but he couldn't finish it. Well, my friends, there are too many who have made that profession of faith and then turned away from Christ. It was told of Spurgeon who once was walking down the street and he was met by a drunk man. Man was barely able to stand up. He was leaning on the lamppost and he said, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? Spurgeon said, no, why should I? I am one of your converts. And he said, well, you might be one of my converts, but you certainly are not one of the Lord's converts or you would not be drunk. My friends, too often, People make a decision for Christ. They don't know what it means to follow Christ, to be holy, to to obey and keep his commandments because we love him. And so they fall away and bring shame upon the name of Christ. Sadly, there are many churches in our day that preach what we would call easy believism. We are to invite people to come to Christ. We are to make it clear what it means to follow him, what it means, what the cost will be. And my friends, it will cost you to follow Christ. In certain work environments, you are going to be passed over for a promotion because of your faith. In many families, Tensions are going to be there because you want to follow Christ. But you must be willing to make the sacrifices 
needed. And if Christ is not worth those sacrifices, you cannot be his disciples. Well, lastly, there must be an unqualified submission to Christ as king. In these final verses, Jesus uses an illustration that many of his day would have understood very well. Right now in the present world situation, it's one that we understand. That a king is going out to war. And that king has to sit down and determine, can he with 10,000 defeat the other king with 20,000? And if he can't, if he knows this is going to be a bloodbath, This is going to be slaughter for him and his people. What does he do? He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Commentators are all over the map about this one. What does this mean? What's the point of this illustration? It's not just good Practices in war. What is Jesus telling this story for? Well, to me, because of the context of what it means to be a disciple, it seems that this illustration is pointing to the enmity that exists between man and God. We've got this hostility for those that are not disciples of Christ. That person must realize, and this is what Jesus is driving at, he must realize he is at war with God. And there's no way possible for him to win that war. God is on his way. Peter speaks of the fact that the judge is standing at the door. If there's no way to win that war, then we must turn to God and ask, on what grounds can we have peace? What, what grounds will keep us from destruction? And the only grounds upon which peace will be given is total submission to Christ as king. You remember Psalm 2? <laughs> Why do the heathen rage? Why do the peoples imagine a vain thing? We're going to break their bonds. We're going to cast them aside. We're not going to bow to God. And he who sits in the heavens will laugh. The counsel of the psalmist at the end. Be wise, O king. Kiss the son. Bow to him. Put your hope in him. 
And brothers and sisters, that is the only ground upon which we can hope to avoid destruction. Total submission to Christ as the king. Look at what Jesus says in verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. My friends, we must bow to Jesus. We must believe in him as the only savior of sinners that we can hope for mercy. Realize that when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, everything you have, everything, everything you own, your life, your dreams, your money, your health, your family, your home, everything is now his. And it belongs to him. This is total submission. It's what Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19 and 20 when he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When you're a disciple, everything, everything belongs to him. And we are stewards. Now these closing words have puzzled a great many of individuals. What does this business with salt have to do with all that we've talked about? Jesus is showing us that anyone who tries to be a disciple of Christ that tries to follow Christ without this unrivaled love without this unavoidable suffering without this unlimited sacrifice and without this unqualified submission is like salt that's lost its savor it's of no value. It means nothing. And it will be cast out upon the dung hill. We need to let these terms of discipleship sink in. They need to register with us. Jesus is not playing games here. He is being very serious about what it means to follow him. I couldn't help but think, as Pastor Matt quoted from hymn number 628 in our hymnals, Come my soul, thy soup prepare. A little bit later, there is another verse that I think sums this up. My friends, John Newton understood all the things that we've talked about tonight. And just listen to verse 4 from number 628. Lord, I come to thee 
for rest. I come. I come to you for the blessing of God. Take possession of my breast. There, thy blood-bought right maintain. And without a rival, reign. May God enable us not only to sing these words, but to pray them, to pray them tonight. Take possession of my breast. There thy blood-bought right maintain. And without a rival, reign. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace that you make the terms of discipleship so clear for us. But Lord, if there are any here tonight trembling at such terms, faltering, feeling as though we can never measure up, oh God, show us, open our eyes and show us Christ, our King, dressed in his perfect righteousness and that righteousness imputed to us. Oh God, be gracious to us tonight. Strengthen our hands. Strengthen the feeble knees. Lift up the hands that hang down and enable us to walk in confidence and courage to bear the cross, to endure the shame, to go through whatever we are called to go through as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we bring him glory, we pray, in his name. Amen. Let's take a few moments. Think carefully about these words.